Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello. So this week, we watched the new romantic comedy horror film, Fresh, directed by Mimi Cave and written by Lauren Kahn. Daisy Edgar-Jones stars as a young woman who gets caught up in a whirlwind romance with a handsome young doctor, played by Sebastian Stan, but their relationship takes a dark turn when he kidnaps her and reveals that he's a cannibal. So this is on Hulu as of now in America. It was at Sundance earlier this year and sold for an undisclosed but presumably large sum of money to Searchlight Pictures, which is a subsidiary of Disney, and was very buzzy at the festival, although it got polarized reviews, I would say. And we both watched it this weekend. And fellas, this film is (laughs) so appalling. I mean, the trailer for this movie is great. I am an easy mark for a rom-com horror movie where Sebastian Stan plays a cannibal. This is truly my zone. I went into this like fucking ready to be entertained. But this movie is for dummies. It's not as bad as Promising Young Women, but it's very much in the Promising Young Women zone in that it's this sort of, I guess, normie twist on a hard-hitting feminist genre with strong girl boss vibes, no sense of introspection, and a great deal of style over substance. I don't know. I feel like they're kind of on a similar plane to me because that film was more offensive But this film is more incompetent. So it's sort of like it balances out. They're both just bad. But Promising Young Woman is an obvious comparison point. I mean, because that movie only was last year. Like, this was definitely in the works before that. But they're coming from a similar bad place of, like, stupid feminism, I think, is the, the easiest way to put it. I don't think that this film is completely without like anything going for it. I think the main thing going for it is Sebastian Stan, who I think is very good and we will talk about him at length. But um, it's one of those movies that thinks it has really deep things to say. And in fact, it has nothing whatsoever to say and is actually saying bad things, which is not my favorite genre. Yeah. I mean, of the two new movies I watched this week, I think that the Batman had considerably more to say about gender roles and I say that not as a joke like (laughs) it actually had some quite smart interesting things to say about like surveillance and catwoman and shit like that um I will be writing about that in fact at work but um yeah with this film the main kind of creators behind this movie director Mimi Cave and writer Lauren Kahn Mimi Cave this is her first feature film but she's a very prolific advertising and music video director and she was talent scouted by Adam McKay and Kevin Messick who are a pair of big kind of mostly comedy producers produced and directed loads of broad comedy films like Don't Look Up earlier this year and they also produced Succession although I don't think they have much creative input there but basically they had got hold of this script by Lauren Kahn who previously worked as an assistant director to Adam McKay and has also written and directed a lot of comedy shorts with him and Will Ferrell And they wanted to recruit a female director for this script, which seems like a correct choice. But I'm very puzzled with why they picked Mimi Cave, because 
while aesthetically it's very easy to kind of look at this film and be like, right, this is like a kind of fun, poppy sort of movie. It'd be nice for like a music video director type person to have as their first project. This is essentially a horror film. Like it's definitely in the sort of satirical comedy end of horror, but this director does not understand or appreciate horror. There is this profile in the New York Times that was with her and the writer and Adam McKay and people. And it just kind of made it clear that she thought the script was like really hard hitting and scary. She was like, oh, it took me ages to read, which is foolish. But it also made it quite clear that she's like extremely unfamiliar with anything approaching recent developments in the horror genre. She references American Psycho and Get Out as a couple of good comparisons for this movie, which is appropriate because like Sebastian Stan is definitely playing an American Psycho kind of character and it is sort of like Get Out vibes, but obviously in a less sophisticated way in every level. But the fact is that there are many, 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 many independent horror filmmakers, including many women who are making movies that are kind of along these lines involving body horror and feminist themes and sort of, you know, making horror movies that riff on the idea of women's fear of men. That is, in fact, one of the oldest and most central tropes of the entire horror genre. And I was just like, okay, why pick her? This interview, in my opinion, is shocking. You said it to me and my jaw was like, on the floor. I feel a little bit bad, though not very bad, because this movie is appalling, but we're just going to be like I mean, ripping also, into this. Also, this like, woman is 38 years old and a very successful film professional, so I don't feel like I'm punching down here. No, not at all. But like, there's a quote in here, I'm trying to find it, where she talks about one of the strategies in making the movie about how or her pitch in making the film um, is actually a quote from um, the screenwriter that she was going to rely heavily on sound and music over visual elements, which would raise the scare factor as though this was like a novel concept. Like who are these people? I just don't, have they ever seen a horror movie? What? Also this movie does not effectively do that. No. So just to jump the gun on just sort of technical stuff, this movie is like aesthetically it's got like a very distinctive aesthetic it looks really cool a lot of it takes place in basically sebastian stan's like murder house (laughs) um which is very well designed and fun in a fairly conventional way for this type of setting though i have a gripe about that house but we can get into that we can discuss the house we'll discuss a kind of non-spoilery section of the plot earlier but basically i want to talk about the music in this first because music is clearly like a huge priority for these filmmakers and ordinarily i'm very on board with that But this movie is like full of needle drops. It has like a full soundtrack. And I was like, these are some of the most basic choices that I could possibly imagine. And they are fitting into like a very specific genre that's kind of hard to pin down, but it's like female fronted indie rock pop bands. And they're all kind of from 10 to 15 years ago. So it doesn't feel contemporary, but it also doesn't feel like something that's trying to be from an elder millennial perspective. We'll talk a bit more about this in a minute when we talk about the main characters, but the main character's age is extremely ambiguous because she's played by a 23-year-old actress, but she's clearly meant to be about 30 because the story doesn't really make sense if she's that young. But like the soundtrack is like loads of Karen O and the Yeah Yeah Yeahs, 
Blood Orange, then there's sort of 1980s pop stuff for Sebastian Stan, which definitely feels like an American Psycho reference. There's Vitamins Drink Quartet, which is for basic bitches. And there is a song called La Fano Mode by Junior, which is a French song, which to me sounded like if you can't afford the rights to April March, or you're like, we can't actually use April March because Tarantino already used that because they want to do a Tarantino reference. And I was just like, this is not cool. It's like really uncool. And it, it was, and it's uncool in a way that clearly is annoying me because it's like when you see yourself in it when you're like well I know that I'm an uncool white woman in my 30s and I do listen to some of this music but I feel like it's too basic to have it in the film in this context you know well they also aren't effective needle no, drops no they're not narratively effective because it's like it's not impactful for the actual setting and it also doesn't make sense for the character's music sense because the only music that's kind of getting played for the character's actual taste is like, you know, kind of date music that's on in the background for romance and when the guy is doing his sort of 80s I'm a villain dances. But the stuff that's actually kind of in the background of the narrative is like, what am I actually meant to be getting from this other than not very edgy sort of girl power indie vibes, you know? Right. And there's no, like, I usually feel like if you're going to use a needle drop, the, the camera should really be doing something in that moment to justify it as opposed to using score. Unless it's like diegetic music in the background or something and like it's a period film and there's like a radio on or something, right? I mean, that's like a, my personal sort of quibble, but, and she's a fucking music video director. So like, I don't understand why this is so hard, but there's no sense of like the camera moving with the music, right? It's just that the music is interspersed really frequently in a sort of pointless way. And I was reading a bunch of reviews and a lot of them were praising the direction, even if the review was kind of middling. And I did not think this was a very well-directed movie. It's not like horrifyingly directed, which makes sense because she obviously has a ton of experience making stuff that's meant to look like pretty good and nice. And like this movie looks fine, but I didn't think it was interesting in any particular way, which goes back to these questions about like horror and how a film is supposed to make you feel, and this movie doesn't understand those questions. The score also is really bad. You are normally the person who thinks way more about music of the two of us, and for me to be actively noticing that the score was bad is a really bad sign. Like, it was just really too sentimental and, like, telegraphing too much what you're supposed to be feeling in a way that felt at odds with the film, which is supposed to be kind of, ooh, this is so sort of transgressive and in your face. And then the music is this sort of like orchestral almost stuff. You just get the sense that the people making this film like didn't really know what they were making. I mean, to read one more quote from this New York Times article, there's a quote from the director where she says, certain scenes were about knowing what was happening or imagining what was happening, but not actually seeing it. So you could then get into people's psychologies a little bit. The audience was then imagining whatever their worst fear was instead of telling them. And again, like, <laughs> I, I don't even know what to say to that. Like, that is so basic. It's like you don't show the monster or the alien or whatever so that the audience is just freaked out. That's literally making me think of like last week when we were talking about Nosferatu, a 100 year old film, and you were talking about how there's like a bit of a gay implication that happens in between the cuts that you're meant to be imagining in your brain. <laughs> right. I remember my dad who was like, like, I mean, he loves movies, but he's not like a cinema person explaining that that's how monsters in movies work to me when I was like a tween. It's, because, it's like, Jaws. that's common knowledge, right? And this is, like, being presented as insight into how this movie was going to be different. Yeah. 
I mean, reading this interview, I was like, to what extent is this like the most basic kind of person ever? Or have they gone to the Adam McKay school of explaining stuff that's really basic and hoping that the target audience finds it clever? Yeah. Oh, I think that's definitely part of what is happening. Should we talk a bit about the two lead characters, the two lead actors? Because obviously like the big draw for us both here is Sebastian Stan, who we have both loved for a long time. Best known for the Avengers franchise, where he gives some absolutely incredible performances interspersed with pure dross in a franchise of stuff that's really diminishing returns. And he has, along with that, done a lot of medium-sized indie movies. He did quite a lot of tragic queer roles earlier in his career. Honestly, he's like a fantastic and underrated actor who has a passionate following for reasons that I think are quite understandable. But due to his schedule being full of the Avengers, he does not do as much as would be nice. Whereas Daisy Edgar Jones is an actress who is at the beginning of her career, as I said, she's 23, who is a nepotism baby, but then who isn't? And she's best known for starring in Normal People, which I have not watched. Yeah, I watched like 10 minutes of Normal People and was like, I cannot tolerate this. I'm turning it off. I'm very happy for everyone who had a profound experience watching that show. I'm sure there are people of that description who are listening to this podcast. Congratulations to you all. But I just couldn't get on with it at all. So I hadn't seen her in anything before watching this movie. And from a like Hollywood perspective, I found it quite interesting to think about the two of them, even if the movie itself was, I thought, very bad. Because I think Sebastian Stan's career is kind of fascinating in a depressing way, because I obviously also think he's very talented. I thought he was fantastic in Pam and Tommy, a TV show I thought was otherwise quite bad. You tweeted something about us doing this film or something about the movie being bad, and someone um, on Twitter replied to you that like he seemed like a good example of an actor who was being sabotaged by his own bad taste. And I obviously don't know him, so like I don't know what's motivating him, but I would counter that I think there's just not a lot of good stuff being made and he is not that famous. So, I mean, obviously, like, Marvel people know who he is, but it's hard to break out of those movies. And especially as a supporting character in the movies, it's really difficult. It is really frustrating to see someone who has so much talent just, like, malinger in these just, like, shitty films, you know? Because like, he's been in a lot of really small movies that are not good. And he's always very good in them. Whereas Daisy Edgar Jones, like, I've been kind of interested in her because people love normal people so much. And I found her very boring in this. But the character is incredibly boring. So, like, it's hard to tell. I feel fairly sympathetic towards her here because the role is a bit nothing. And that's tying into, like, the issue of whether this qualifies as a horror movie. Because, like, by any stretch of the imagination, it should be horror. But with this sort of character, it is kind of a screen queen role, right? The point of the movie is that she is lured into a scary house and kidnapped and then has to like deal with psychological and physical torment, right? And that is actually a deceptively difficult kind of role because like good horror movies, the characterization can be extremely thin, but the performance is all about the audience is like completely engaged with this person's torment. And that is like a staple of the genre. I've watched hundreds of movies that are basically that, you know? And in this, it's like, it's not happening because a lot of the time the kind of tension draws back because it goes back into this sort of satirical kind of comedic zone. But also, I guess, just like the way she's 
perceiving her character or the way she's being directed just doesn't work like that because it's more in the sort of relationship drama zone. But maybe we should give a bit more detail on the initial premise of this movie. I found the first half an hour of this film pretty entertaining, although I had some problems with it. The first half hour is literally played straight as a rom-com. Yes, although it's clear that the guy is like, something is, some, uh, there's another shoe that's going to drop. Like, even yeah. if you didn't know it was a horror movie going in, his performance is good enough that you could sense that like... And also, if there's enough nice stuff happening in the first half hour of a film. <laughs> right. But anyway, so she is this young woman. Again, her age is kind of like not really explained fully. I mean, it doesn't matter that much, I guess, but it is a little bit odd. She clearly is meant to be like 30 because she's t- complaining or not even complaining, but just sort of like talking about how she's just really burned out on online dating and she feels she feels kind of compelled to do it, but also is like, but why do I have to? Like, I don't need a man, blah, blah, blah. And if she's 23 years old, the way she's talking makes no sense. Like, I understand that young people are very dramatic, but like, it's just not, it wouldn't, it And also she lives alone in a really nice apartment and I think is meant to be self-employed as a graphic designer or something. Yeah. So let's say she's about 30. She has a best friend who... Oh my god. Just absolutely... (gasps) The tokenism excruciating. She has a black queer best friend played by Jojo Gibbs and this character is absolutely the same as that character would be in a rom-com from like 1998. Like, sure, you probably wouldn't have a bisexual woman in a rom-com from 1998, but she literally exists in order to give this woman pep talks about her dating life. And like, occasionally she'll drop in that she also has a dating life, but it will only be in like a sassy friend way, you know? This role is so racist. It's appalling. It's really shallow. It's like, and I was, I was shocked. It's, unbelievable so like again uh, the first half hour of the movie i was basically enjoying it because of this the stuff with sebastian stan which we haven't even described yet but like wait one moment but the stuff with this character i like could not believe what i was seeing i was just like she doesn't how like, she doesn't happen? have like an interior life and she's got one of these sort of rom-com friend jobs where she's working in a fashion magazine but she's always like on the phone because as we know millennials love to constantly talk on the phone in the middle of tasks but she's like on the phone being like oh girl like this guy sounds like he might be bad news find out more information about him and i'm like what in the holy exposition batman <laughs> the fact that she also is queer i was like this is like a crime like this is just so bad and the thing that was like so unbelievably egregious to me about this was that like i just could not for the life of me conceive of a reality where these two women would be friends and they're supposed to be (laughs) best friends from like the last seven years and i was like okay so what is this woman's problem that like this fucking boring white woman is her best friend like in no reality would this be the case yeah it's like the friend character is so cool like her name's molly and she's like she's clearly really cool and really sociable although we only meet like one person in her social circle because he is relevant to the plot later on but literally she's like clearly really outgoing and has this like cool job and is really stylish and the implication is that she's like always off doing stuff but because the story like obviously revolves around the protagonist noah we only see her stuff and that's all just like supportive exposition pep talks 
and yeah she's she's quite a boring person like she's just this she seems like she kind of sits at home alone a lot wearing sweatpants well we just have no sense of what motivates her in life if these were both women who love books or love movies or love sports or have any passion in life right you could be like okay i get why they're friends like they share this thing and like or maybe they went to college together and like met when they were 18 years old and like ever since they've been really close and there is none of that there's it they're literally just like well we need a black character so we're gonna stick this lady in i mean it was shocking yeah i I have a quote from the screenwriter that i will read out a bit later once we get into the spoiler zone but i was just like oh boy (laughs) there's no there's no self-awareness going on here but yeah during this first act after noah the protagonist has basically given up on online dating she's like god these guys fucking suck which is like fair enough um, she then meets Sebastian Stan in the supermarket where he comes on to her in like a really intentionally non-threatening and charming and cute way and he's so good looking and he hits on her when she's just wearing her slouchy normal outfits and he carefully drops in into the conversation mentions of like his sister and his niece and I was like great detail because he's making sure he's non-threatening by talking about how well he gets on with his female relatives love this detail and then they have a chill but fast moving romance where like he goes home with her and they sleep together and he just seems like really nice and stuff and then he invites her on this mini holiday to this secluded house in the middle of nowhere where he drugs her and chains her up in the basement and then reveals that he is a cannibal and he is going to be harvesting her body parts to sell to other cannibal fetish guys who buy the body parts in an online business i will say that i loved kind of the aesthetic details here of how this business worked because you see him like basically packaging like vacuum sealed bits of human meat into all these boxes with like accessories from his kidnap victims and like little polaroid photos and sending them off to people and i was like wow this is exactly everyone who has, has an etsy business also like has to do their little postcards <laughs> and their etsy boxes and stuff and i was like i do love this this is you know the personal touch really gets you those extra like five star ratings so i thought that was a cool (laughs) detail but um yeah then we get into this sort of the next phase of the story which is sort of her being trapped in this house and being aware that he is going to like surgically remove her body parts one by one while keeping her alive so the meat's fresh yeah so so basically you get like credits like half an hour into the movie which i always respect bold i love it apart from the racist friend character, I was still fully on board at this point because I was like, I love some mid-movie credits and I do feel like this is going to be fun because Sebastian Stan has just a really entertaining reveal where he just makes it absolutely clear that he is a fucked up weirdo. Yeah, so I thought that the the scenes of them going on these dates and like the initial scene in the grocery store, I thought were really, really well done. In retrospect, shockingly well done because any subtlety that you get in that first half an hour goes out the window as soon as she is kidnapped. Because again, you can sense that like something is not completely right, but you completely understand why she falls for it because he is unbelievably charming he's very funny he's obviously very hot he's a doctor right like as a straight woman you'd have to be like superhumanly resistant to not at least go out on the date with him and then once the date happens it sort of snowballs from there right and um obviously the big mistake she makes is like agreeing to go on this trip with him which is too fast not that it's like her fault of course but like that's the thing where like her friend is like um, this seems bad because he hasn't told her where they're going, which obviously is to make sure that no one can find her. But 
again, he's been so charming and like non-threatening that you understand that too. Even if as the viewer, you're like, don't do it. Like, don't get in the car. And I just thought that all of that, you know, not that it was necessarily a masterpiece or anything, but I was like, I can understand why this character would behave in this way. And like his performance is super fun. And the sort of knowing what was coming, not exactly, but like I knew there was a cannibal thing. And like, so that tension between knowing it was going to go bad, but also like enjoying him being a very charming hot man. I was like, oh, this is kind of fun. Literally the second the reveal happens, the movie just collapses. Like it becomes horrible. So basically he has her and these like other women chained up in these like cells in the basement of this incredibly fancy house. And he's like, yeah, I have to keep you alive while I'm doing this because it's better if the meat is fresh. Though I will point out that you later see his like freezer and there is an enormous amount or number of body parts in there, which is clearly just to impress the viewer with how many body parts there are, but really contradicts his whole situation. Like Morgan, I, I have not considered that, and you're so, <laughs> you're so I, right. I mean, I think the implication is that like he the frozen stuff is for him, and like the fresh stuff is for the customers. But even so, yes, that's pure nonsense. <laughs> yeah, and there are a number of things like that in the movie where like there just is a logical gap, including how unbelievably nice this house is because. Uh, spoiler, you find out later because her friend Molly is on a quest to find where she is and she manages to track down his address through her bartender friend who served them to his house. And it's just like a normal suburban house where he lives with his wife and children because he has a wife and children. And it's like nice, but not like extremely fancy at all. And so like, why does he have this like ludicrously fancy house that's like all these like fancy artworks. Well, he's invested and, like, all of his murder money into the murder house. It's but it's so clearly just like well, we want this to look fancy, so we're yeah. just going to do this. <laughs> I right? mean, the thing that always cracks me up about this kind of scenario is I always just think about like what did the contractors think? Because <laughs> it's like well, first of all, right. you purchased this like incredible mid twentieth century cottage with its amazingly in, in, gorgeous interior decor. But then also the underground section is like this labyrinth of cells. Like there's several cells and a lot of like a surgical like room and stuff down there. And I'm like, I guess maybe you could tell the contractor that you're like, well, I want a whole underground section because like I'm a survivalist. And then you're the person who installs all of the like security doors and stuff, you know. <laughs> but one does wonder about the contractors. You just have to like not think about that. But um. This section did make me think of the TV show The OA, which I'm pretty sure you haven't watched. But The OA is one of my favourite TV shows. And one element of that is that the main character is a teenage girl who gets kidnapped. And a lot of it is kind of told through flashbacks. Like she is kept in essentially the same scenario as this. Like she's kept in a homemade dungeon by like a weird psycho guy. And so are several other people. And they form a bond because they were able to speak to each other through their cells. And it's also like an incredibly elaborate series of cells. But because of the type of show that is, you're like, I love these cells. It's gorgeous. And I love what he's done with the place. Because <laughs> it's fine. They've, they've put you on the right level. But like that's felt like they'd really done something like psychologically interesting and compelling with the relationships between those characters. Whereas in this movie, you kind of have her... As soon as she like arrives in her cell, she's able to talk to the girl in the next cell who we don't see. 
And like this girl's able to explain to her like, oh, there's one other girl here right now, Melissa, but she's really gone off the deep end because she's already had too many parts removed. But the conversations they have just feel like so hollow and not upbeat in the right way because you can kind of imagine people having sort of gallows humor, upbeat conversations. But like this girl isn't like saying anything about herself, you know, it's like she's also there to like assist Noah's story. And it's just like, it's not insightful in any way you know like the conversations they're having between the two of them and there's also no sense of tension about the possibility of him catching them which was weird yeah no he's clearly not concerned all the characters just exist in relation to her except him kind of like he has this family although we don't really learn anything about his wife except that she exists and like we find out that she knows about like she's collaborating with him to some degree about his whole thing and like part of her leg is gone so we can assume that he ate that which is a gross detail that I can appreciate yeah I like that (laughs) but like my like main issue with the movie is that it's just so extreme and literal that there's no room for anything interesting to happen with the characters right like There are quotes in that New York Times profile about wanting to convey this sense of, like, fear that women have sort of, like, walking around in cities in the dark or whatever, which, again, is, like, an incredibly basic thing that, like, many people have talked about. And, like, I am not at all saying, like, horror movies should only stick to, like, small, realistic depictions of reality. Like, obviously that's not true. But this is so extreme that, like, nothing remotely like this is happening to people. I mean, I guess it maybe happened somewhere at some point to one person, but like, it's so hard to conceptualize yourself in a situation like this. And it happens in such a binary way, right? Like all of a sudden she goes from, oh, I'm dating this guy I really like to he has kidnapped me and he is going to kill me by cutting off my body parts. That like, (laughs) there's just no like in between. And the entire movie, she is figuring out how to escape as you would were you in this horrific situation. And so you don't get the sense as you do in something like Hannibal of the sort of like transgressive thrill of this horrible thing, right? Like she kind of tries to seduce him a bit and like he clearly is like, you're the special one and like, I'm really into you. But she's completely performing that and that's not interesting drama. It would be interesting if she were kind of maybe into it too, or like kind of thinks that he is kind of hot, even though he's this like evil psycho. But no, the movie's just like, he's bad and she has to figure out how to stop him. And it's like, okay, like, yeah. but why? So like, <laughs> I, mean, I was frequently grossed out by this movie, which is like, well done. You have success would creep me out. I was very grossed out by some of the stuff. Just to go into some like mid-level spoilers now, about halfway through the movie, he does perform his first surgery on her he sedates her and then like cuts the meat out of like her butt so i was like this is horrifying i'm quite impressed by their imagination like that is a really disturbing thing i've never seen in a movie so like after this point she like forever will no longer have a butt and she has to recover in this cell like she's you know having to be sedated and she's like lying on her front and stuff and i'm like for the rest of the movie there is absolutely no way i can look at any single scene without thinking about the fact that like a that sounds like incredibly painful and b she's definitely permanently disabled by that like that's some crucial muscles i don't know anything about bodies but i'm pretty sure you 
are gonna struggle to stand up ever again if that's like been permanently removed, right? But she is like recovering at an incredible pace. Within like a few days, she is walking around at least somewhat and she's sitting down and she's able to have like seductive dates with him while sitting down at dinner. And I was like, I cannot focus on any of this because the part of her you've decided to remove is so logistically essential to like the stuff she's doing. I can't focus on any of the other stuff, which I felt was like a real, a real problem. I mean, so I kind of felt like, I mean, obviously they're part of the reason they cast a very skinny, beautiful woman is that she's skinny and beautiful. And that's the type of person who gets cast in movies. But I felt like part of it also was so that they could do this and then like have her in a sort of loose robe and be like, you just can't see anything. It's fine. Right. But to give the listeners some too much information about my health problems, like I'm having horrible back problems, which like the muscles from down there and like in your like hip area all connect through the glutes. Right. So if you just chop that off, like, as you said, how are you going to fucking walk? And like your back's not going to work. And like your hips are just going to be like, what the fuck is going on? You would be so fucked. And the movie obviously is just like, it's funny to take her ass away basically. It's a really bad choice, right? Because it's like, unless it's like the most absurd comedy ever, which this isn't, it just is so distracting. If this was like a true feminist edgy movie, you'd have her like fucking covered in a ton of bandages for this whole situation. You just have like her entire midriff would be, because like if you have like major surgery, you have to have like drains and stuff, you know, you can't just have her like in a dress a week later having dinner with him. It did make me kind of, I wrote down like a little list here of other body horror movies that I think are good comparisons that kind of did this sort of thing better. Hannibal, obviously, because Hannibal has like a lot of extremely disturbing surgical stuff and is about cannibalism and is very fun and is aiming in some ways for a very similar tone to what this is aiming for because like it is funny. It does kind of satirize stuff. It does like make a joke out of cannibalism while also being really disturbing and being kind of a cat and mouse game. Then the horror movie Raw, which we discussed a while ago, which is by a female filmmaker, is clearly about sort of gender and independence and bodies and gore and is like very extreme and intense. Dead Ringers, which is a 1988 Cronenberg film starring Jeremy Irons, where he plays like a pair of twin gynecologists. This is a very fun movie. Definitely doing like more interesting stuff with these sort of like creepy male surgeon (laughs) roles than this movie is. And also the film Braid, which is not like directly similar, but Braid is kind of a lower budget horror movie that's also like very aesthetically sort of candy colored. It's in this sort of vein and it's about these three young women who are besties and they have this agreement where they have a sort of role play weekend where they just go to this secluded house and play these three like extremely fucked up roles that involve torturing each other with horrible surgical instruments. It's actually a really fun movie. It's pretty extreme, but that is like definitely in the like weirder end of movies of this type that's kind of doing something similar, but I felt was more effective. Yeah. I mean, again, I feel like the movie kind of thinks it's original and it's not But I also felt like the filmmaker slash screenwriter slash, you know, whoever had watched Hannibal like 7,000 times, the TV show. It clearly was a huge influence, but not in a way that was productive. Of course, any work of art is going to be influenced by other stuff. And like when I'm working on something creative, I often am thinking really directly of other, you know, books I've read or movies I've seen. And that can be like really positive and generative thing. But in this case, it felt like they hadn't actually understood Hannibal. And I have, I'm someone who has some qualms with that TV show. Like, I'm not its biggest fan. But 
this made me feel like, you know, what was good was like the first season of Hannibal. Like, you know, like that, was, <laughs> that was a good time. And it just felt like such a sort of pale imitation of that. Like the house doesn't look exactly like Hannibal's house at all, but the sort of like richness of it felt like it was clearly trying yeah. to imitate that. With sort of the, the classic fantasy of someone who is just a complete monster, but is really artistic about it. Yes. And the scenes where he is feeding her food, obviously, are like clearly taking inspiration from that show. And like, there is something kind of gross about those scenes in a way that's kind of interesting, but there's no sense, again, of like transgression at all. Because she just goes back to her room and like throws it up. <laughs> yeah it was like you went to the trouble of like eating this meat because <laughs> like his whole shtick is that he is like he says oh i ate human flesh for the first time when i was 19 and it completely changed me because it was this incredibly transformative experience like it was uh, delicious and all this stuff and also just the concept of like his little cannibal community i think probably does reflect the reality of people in real life who like want to be cannibals and that it's like a bunch of people who think that this is some like hugely exciting transgression i'm sure they're more likely to be a bunch of weirdos on internet forums rather than like the illuminati but the whole concept of this is there's this group of like really rich men and it does kind of make sense that like all of his targets are these attractive young women because it's presented explicitly as a fetish thing because this movie's allegory is extraordinarily transparent but um i felt there was a very telling quote from the screenwriter Lauren Kahn which is from this interview with the Hollywood Reporter where she says violence and things that men do in a lot of ways don't discriminate it doesn't really matter whether it's trans women non-binary women straight women queer women I think that violent men are an all-encompassing fear just starting with Noah she's not presenting in any different way than maybe I would going out into the world and I'm not like a super feminine girl but I feel like I've been in super scary situations regardless of what I'm wearing same goes for Molly which is the friend role she's bisexual and she comes from a totally different place from a different background but again that treatment is not going to discriminate in terms of how she ends up in this situation and I'm like, that's just doesn't, I mean, it just shows like you don't know what you're talking about because I mean, first of all, the situation here is that he does discriminate who he's preying on. He's preying yes. on young, attractive, primarily white, although occasionally Asian women. Though I would point out, sorry to interrupt, but like, I was really amused by like, you see the names of various people on like the tags in like the meat locker or like on someone has left her a note on one of the magazines she has, which again, it's like, how the fuck did this person get a pen? But like, whatever. Yeah. And there was like such a pointed, like they're going to have yes. like diverse last names. And I was just like, this is like, what are we doing? Like, I just, oh my God. It just felt indicative of like not having a solid thesis for the story at hand, you know, because it's not about how, all women of all types are equally preyed upon by creepy men. It's a story specifically about how this hot guy is seducing this conventionally attractive white lady who's age 30 because she's isolated and doesn't have a support system. He'll know she goes, she's going missing and then selling her body because she's like conventionally attracted to the people who want to eat her body parts. And that isn't really social commentary. Whereas the movie Raw is very much social commentary in an extremely gross way. <laughs> well, right. Like, I mean, number one, this quote you just read is straight up not true, right? Like, the idea that, like, trans women are equally preyed upon as, like, cis women, for one, is factually inaccurate, right? Like, they are much more at risk of violence, right. for instance, right? Like, I mean, it's just stupid. It's just stupid it's thing like to say. statistically inaccurate. <laughs> right. But 
what would be accurate to say, or at least reflect something more true about the world, would be to say that, like, women feel this, even if they're not literally all statistically at the same level of risk. Like, this is why people are so, like, women are so obsessed with, like, true crime stuff, right? Is this feeling of being afraid. Because, of course, something could happen. And, like, that's a very valid thing to have that fear, even if not everyone is at the same statistical level of risk. But the movie, because the movie is like, well, everyone is the same. Like, that waters down any potential critique it could have. And the, like, dissonance between that and the fact that the movie clearly does understand that, like, the hot women are the ones that these people want to be eating. And, like, it just, none of it makes sense. And I feel like if the movie actually were interesting and daring, it would be a Cronenberg movie, right? I mean, not literally, but, and have this sort of like really out there, yeah, these men want to eat hot women and like have that be like a big part of what's going on. And instead it's kind of relegated to the background a little bit. And even though it's very explicit about the fact that this guy is a cannibal and is selling this stuff, it does, and like shows them eating the meat. There's something a little coy about the film in a way that's like, I realize that sounds like nonsense because I I was just complaining earlier about how completely explicit and like in a boring way it is by being like, I'm chaining you up and I'm going to eat you. But even the scene you were referencing where he's like, I ate the meat at the, for the first time at 19 and my life changed. Like, you don't get any details about that. And like, I don't necessarily care about this guy's background, but in a more sort of Baroque movie, you would get like the whole gory story of that. And like, it would go into all the detail and it would just, I mean, this was already an R-rated movie. So like, why not just go for it, right? And the film doesn't have the guts to, do that. And so instead you're left with this kind of like banal thing that is kind of just boring. Yeah. Cause like, I'm not scared and thrilled. Like I would be in a movie with a more traditional horror female protagonist role at the center. And I don't feel like I'm getting anything from the social commentary as discussed. So kind of what am I here for? And then the movie ends on this, so somewhat dubious note where it's like so um her friend has managed to track her down by basically like figuring out that the texts that are being sent through her phone from sebastian stan are fake and so the friend kind of tracks down the bar when they went on a date and then tracks down sebastian stan's wife and then because his wife is like in on the whole situation sebastian stan and his wife then knock out the friend molly kidnap her and put her in the dungeon as well What happens is Noah manages to overpower Sebastian Stan by like just getting too close to him, like romancing him in her dress with her completely healed butt apparently and gets him a bit drunk (laughs) and goes for a blowjob and then like bites his dick as hard as she can and then smears toothpaste in his face and like runs for it. And she locks him in there and then like kind of goes down to the cells and then she and her friend Molly manage to free the other girl who is like quite injured like she's had some amputations and they like struggle to get her out of this house because there's loads of stairs and then this sort of finale is them beating up Sebastian Stan in the kitchen with like all the implements they can find 
And then when they escape the house, there's kind of like a showdown with the wife who's also come around. Well, he he follows them out of the house also. The whole yeah. time I was like, is this guy a fucking Terminator? Like, he just yeah. will not He, like, die. survives having been, like, hit with, like, a meat tenderizer eight times on the head. Well, he has a gun. And then, like, Noah winds up shooting him in the face. And then they run off and then they're like, oh, we don't have signal. We can't find anyone. There's, like, an abandoned barn and that's, like, the only thing. So she's like, I'm going to leave you guys here. I'm going to go back and find my phone. In the dark, in the woods alone like how stupid are these people i just could not so then she runs into the wife looking well she's found her phone in the forest floor in the dark which already i was like that would not happen and then the wife who she doesn't recognize obviously because she's never met her at first is like oh thank god that you got him but then tries to strangle her and then molly shows up and kills the wife and then they have a like cutesy friend moment where they're like i love you I love you. And then the movie ends. And I was just like, what is this? Yeah. I mean, the thing it made me think of, so I met friend of the podcast, Charlotte Eater, at a writing group at Oxford. And there was a famous, now famous occurrence, this is like 10 years ago, at one of these meetings, where one of the men in the group brought something he insisted was chiclet. That was about these women kidnapping a pickup artist and, like, tying him to a chair and they were going to, like, cut his dick off or something. Well, that's not chiclet. We were all like, that's not chiclet. And he just was like, no, no, it's chiclet. This was not a person I liked very much. And I didn't know Charlotte very well at the time. And I just remember so vividly her being like, women do not think about penises as much as men do. And like (laughs) men think we think about that stuff all the time. People just do not care. And I was like, I need to be friends with this person. Like it was so funny, but I think about it every time there's something like this. And like this movie was written and directed by a woman. So sadly they are playing into this stupid trope of like, obviously if a guy chained you up and was like harvesting your body parts, you would want to do something violent to him. But the idea that, like, the best way to make a statement about, like, gender roles is to have the female characters physically beat up the man while yelling at him and even then, like, doing stuff to his penis because it's so boring. It's just so also, boring. there were many contexts in which I would be completely on board with a movie where, like, someone bites someone's dick off in revenge, right? But first of all, the extent to which she is able to deceive him, she is able to fully pretend that she is like engaging with him and seducing him and even getting him into bed in a life-threatening situation is like, that is a specific piece of characterization. So like either you need to set up that this person is very skilled at duplicity beforehand, like earlier in the film, which she isn't, she's like very normal. Or you have to like put more attention into the idea that like she's bringing this skill up from her deepest depths of her heart because she knows it's the only thing she can do to survive, which is like a tried and tested horror trope where someone who initially seems normal at the beginning of the film is like finding these reserves of survival skills. But the film doesn't like really build that up. It just has her like, it just makes it look so easy for you to have a date with this guy and like really you know, just seduce him and stuff. And I'm like, but the previous time we saw her going on a date with a guy she couldn't tolerate, she was just like fully rolling her eyes at him. So it's like, where is this coming from? And secondly, as you said, the whole penis thing is like, 
that works well if it's a really sexual story or if it's like this guy is characterized as someone who like really values his dick to like an abnormal degree (laughs) and it's like of course no one wants to have their dick bitten off but he actually isn't really a sexual predator in that way like part of the story is that she is the only one that he slept with like the others he kind of seduced in other ways but it was like he wasn't actually dating them necessarily whereas she's the one that he thinks is special and is like you know likes her a lot just doesn't make sense in context right because like the movie is not it's not a sexual movie right yeah which is part of the problem obviously because they've set it up as a romance and then there's like no sexual tension or chemistry or anything really well that's why the movie is called fresh and not flesh (laughs) correct and i also think that like Again, I'm, I definitely don't want to be, like, writing Daisy Edward Jones off on the basis of one bad movie, which is not her fault. But I don't think that she's persuasive in those scenes. I mean, people thought Normal People was very good. It's not right. the sort of but thing again, I ever I'm, watch, so I'm I will not I'm commenting know. on specifically this, this movie, yeah. which, like, clearly we don't think very much of the director. And the director's job is also to direct the actors. So, like, we can place the blame at her feet. But in those scenes... She just seems kind of bland and clearly not very into it. And that doesn't seem to be an intentional note that she's been asked to play, though who knows. And so the idea that this guy is just like, oh, yes, finally, it's all happening. I mean, maybe he's just like a huge idiot. I don't know. But it just doesn't really scan, right? And so... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that relationship would make more sense if the character actually was meant to be 23. Because when we see his relationship with his wife, it's like, they're this team and she's this incredibly gorgeous woman. But the scenes they have together, it sort of implies that she's had like a bunch of facelifts. Like she doesn't look like she's had a bunch of facelifts. She looks like a beautiful young woman. But the way they kind of interact is like, oh yeah, he's like perfected her and stuff. And like, she's got to stay perfect or he'll throw her over. And so... It is actually kind of a thing where, like, if a guy is going to, like, dump his wife for a much younger woman, it, like, even if she's, like, a boring woman with no life experience, that is part of the attraction where it's, like, here's someone who's malleable and kind of naive. And that is sort of this char- what this character's role could be. But if she's just, like, 30 years old and kind of normy and boring, it's, like, why, you know, why? <laughs> Well, the whole, like, you're the special one. It's like, on what basis are you making that, like, distinction? Like, there's nothing about her. (laughs) It's just stupid. It's just really silly. And, again, you get the sense that this movie has this belief that it's making this, like, super smart statement, which is the thing that really damns it, I think. Because, I mean, I feel like when we talk about horror movies, I'm often like, well, I wanted there to be, like, a theme. And... This is an example of a movie where I feel like they had the theme before the story. And that's a problem. Like, the, it should be coming from the characters, right? I mean, people totally write stuff coming up with an idea first all the time. And sometimes it works. Like, people have different processes. But if you can tell that the theme came first, then that's a serious issue. And I feel like a lot of these movies, especially when they deal with sort of gender and gender violence in the like horror space which like not the promising young woman is exactly a horror movie but it's obviously in this zone too are so overdetermined that they don't have anything interesting to say about the actual characters or their relationships or like sex and instead it's all just like 
the men must pay. And like, I don't mind there being like violence in these movies. It's that the way it's carried out is just like, and now we're going to stab him. And it's like, well, that's just not interesting to and me And also, at as all. we discussed like, in the Promising Young Women episode, there was many rape revenge thrillers. But yeah, just to sort of round out, I think that it's very relevant, sort of the production process for this film, like the backstory of how it got made, right? Because this movie's coming out now in 2022. I think presumably it was like probably delayed a little by pandemic situations. This definitely seems like something where the screenwriter was arriving like just at the right time with this script for it to be like after the Me Too movement where suddenly a lot of producers like for example Adam McKay who specializes in sort of well-meaning liberal American satires were like rubbing their hands together like we need to make more movies by women that say something about sexism right and this is very much in his wheelhouse it's very much in his zone and so this is a movie that's coming up through that backstory in very mainstream Hollywood and in one of these interviews with McKay he's sort of framing it as oh it was very hard to sell this script like studios were like oh it's too extreme And that is not the case because obviously there are dozens and dozens of horror movies going back decades which are in this general vein and are more extreme but they are being made through like smaller studios and are specifically framed for horror audiences. Whereas this is like, oh, we're going to release it through Hulu, a Disney subsidiary and it's going to star a guy from a Marvel movie. So it's more high profile. But unlike something like Get Out, which was more independent, it's just going far more normy, and that's why it doesn't succeed, you know? Yeah. I mean, look, Cronenberg was making movies in the 80s and 90s that would make this movie cover its eyes and, like, start <laughs> yes. crying, right? Like, the idea that this is some... I mean, and obviously, he is a male director. Like, there is a distinction in terms of, like, access and et cetera, et cetera. But it's just absurd to be, like... No one would take on this unbelievably daring project from these original minds. Like, come on. Like, (laughs) no. It's like Hannibal aired on NBC in 2015. Right! Like, please. Yeah, so we don't recommend this. Uh, Bottom line. No. Don't watch it. Watch American Psycho instead is my... Great movie. Also directed by women. Right, exactly. So there you go. Like, done. So next week we will be doing a listener request this is such a great request for our podcast specifically i have never seen or even heard of this movie or i had before it was requested of us it's called populaire it's a french film from 10 years ago it's a romantic comedy set in the late 50s that according to wikipedia is about a woman who is trained by i assume the love interest by man to become the fastest typist in the world for winning the 1959 international speed typing contest in new york city which like i mean (laughs) superb like i can't wait we love a specific premise yes so there will be a lot of fun stuff to talk about with romantic comedies and you know period films so that is going to be really fun again that's called popular we also have a bonus episode up on our patreon about the MGM musical The Pirates starring Gene Kelly and Judy Garland that I think is one of the best things we've recorded in a while. Yeah, honestly, that episode's a banger. So like if you've been considering going and signing up to our Patreon, I think you will definitely enjoy this episode on The Pirate, regardless of whether you have watched The Pirate, which you definitely should because that movie rules. 
Yeah, it was so much fun to record. So you can do that at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. You can also request an episode there if you would like. And we would also love it if you would leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. A five-star review in particular really, really helps with promotion and visibility. And Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me on The Daily Dot, where I recently wrote about the Batman and probably also the new season of Star Trek Picard. And you can find my work at Bustle, and you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast, and our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.